Communication is always a big issue, isn't it? In every arena of life. Uh, these days, people like to text, to text to communicate. And I'm telling you, it is rife with difficulty because it's hard to figure out sometimes what people really mean. For example, the other day, I'm texting with my administrative assistant. Did you know we have one of those here? You've not seen her, but her name is Allison. She's my baby girl, and she loves to do that and said, Daddy, I'll do it for free. I said, I like that. But anyway, so the other day, I'm texting with her something about worship services. I think, I can't remember exactly what I was talking about, but we were talking about something important. And then she says, Word, W-O-R-D. And I said, well, I didn't think it was that bad, honey. I, I, and so I'm trying to back up and trying to figure out why she's upset. And, and she finally called me. She said, Daddy, no, that's, that's an exclamation of happiness. What? Word. She said, Daddy, that's what young people use now to express uh, joy or something's good. They say, word. I said, you're kidding me. I thought you were saying, my word. That's bad. Okay, I'm trying to learn how to communicate in the 21st century world. And I, I, that one caught me off. Uh, but, you know, other communication issues. Our daughter, Melissa, used to come home from Sunday school with the most amazing things. I mean, I would say, honey, what would you learn today, Daddy? Today we learned about the parable of the Good American. <laughs> honey, do you mean Good Samaritan? No, Daddy, it was a Good American. Okay. Then another day she came home, she said, Daddy, you know what today was? I said, what was it? She said, it was commotion day. <laughs> do you mean promotion day? No, Daddy, it was commotion day. And I thought, boy, in your class, I bet it was. <laughs> but Brother Joe back there this morning, can I tell that story, Joe? So he takes his grandson to the grocery store yesterday and to breakfast. And then he comes. <laughs> anyway, later on, the, the, the mother of the child that he took to the grocery store and breakfast called and said, may I ask, where did you take my son today? Well, yeah, why? Because he came home and said, y'all were out looking for pink ladies and you couldn't find any, and so you left. And I didn't even realize there's a type of apple called a pink lady. And so he and his grandson, he goes to the grocery store and he calls his wife, I can't find any pink ladies, so I'm going, coming home. Well, the boy went home and told his mom, we were looking for ladies and we couldn't find any, so we just came home. Well, you just never know what people are thinking. I'm telling you, it's amazing. Well, how about this? Some communication is difficult, obviously, between men and women, husbands and wives. That's why there's an old book entitled Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Well, I love the story of one old couple. They'd been married for over 50 years. Someone asked the gentleman the secret of their marital bliss. Well, the old man said, the wife and I had disagreement when we first got married. It went like this. When she's upset about something, she just tells me, gets it off her chest real quick. What about you, he said. Well, when I'm mad about something that she's done, I decided just to take a long walk. 
So he said, I guess, I suppose that you could attribute our happy marriage to the fact that I have lived a largely outdoor life. <laughs> well, whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. Well, communication is a serious issue. And this morning, as we read in our John 3 text, we're going to see that Jesus' disciples and Jesus had a communication problem with someone else. So look with me to John chapter 3. Now, weeks ago I asked you to read ahead, and I'm going to ask you for next week, please, to read very carefully the latter portion of John chapter 3. And go ahead and read chapter 4, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It really is. Because we're going to be coming to that soon. But now, John chapter 3, beginning with verse 22, going through verse 30. John 3, beginning with verse 22, and you can look it up on your Bibles, on your smartphone, whatever you've got, a tablet, whatever you have. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, where there was much water. And they came and were baptized. Verse 24, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. And there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and everybody is coming to him. All are coming to him. John answered, verse 27, and said, A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him still rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And now look at verse 30. Say it out loud with me. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. In this chapter, I've already told you, we're going to see Jesus in three different roles. We've already seen him as the teacher. Today we see him as the bridegroom. And we will also see him as a witness in the latter few verses of John chapter 3. Three different roles. Teacher, bridegroom, and witness. Today, we see him as the bridegroom. But our first major point is we've got to focus on the argument, the problem that was occurring that was because of this miscommunication or lack of communication or some kind of competing argument here. Now, we focus on this argument that was occurring there in those first few verses. Now, until John the Baptist was arrested and put in prison and killed. The ministry of John the Baptist overlapped the ministry of Jesus, right? I mean, they were both uh, reaching people, they were both preaching, and they were both uh, involved in 
bringing people to Christ and baptizing them. And so we see this overlapping caused some point of friction or communication issue between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John. Now John had always been very clear. I'm not the guy. I'm just pointing to the guy. I'm not the one. I am just the predecessor for the one. But every time there are two popular preachers and they're involved in a similar, similar work, some people in the South say similar, similar work, then we know they're often between the disciples or the followers or church members comes kind of an issue of competition and comparison. People say, well, you ought to hurt our guy. Well, you ought to hurt our guy. Well, our guy did this. Our guy did that. And so inevitably, when there are two popular preachers, there's going to be this kind of competition, even if it's not between them, between the followers or those that give some kind of credence to them. And so that's what's happening here. There's comparison. There's competition. Now, where did this occur? I brought a map with me today. I want you to see my map. And you may not can see it from where you are, and that's because you ought to be sitting on the front row. But anyway, just you can see enough of it to see it says map of Israel in the New Testament. And up top you see that dark spot, that's the Sea of Galilee. And to the left of it it says Galilee. And then down at the bottom it says, well in the middle it says Samaria. Don't know if anybody's got good enough eyes for that. But then at the bottom it says Judea. And what does it say here? It says Jesus... After these things, Jesus and disciples came into the land of Judea. So somewhere outside of Jerusalem, they had gone down into this area of Judea. Now, if you want to get up and come look at it, you can. But right about in the upper central part, it says Anon or Salim. That is a small village just to the west of the Jordan River. And that's where John was baptizing. Now, where was Jesus baptized? A different place. We're not certain where. Most scholars believe it's a little further south than that on the Jordan River. Uh, where I do baptizing, didn't I baptize somebody in here? Yeah, I sure did. He was baptized close up to the Sea of Galilee, and it was cold, wasn't it, Brother Tom? Yes, it was cold because that water comes straight out of the bottom of the, ooh, the Sea of Galilee, and that's come straight down from Mount Hermon which is a snow-capped mountain most of the year, and it's cold. But anyway, somewhere near Anon, Paul, uh, excuse me, Paul, John was baptizing. His disciples, his John's disciples, start this argument. They start arguing, and it first was doctrinal about the issue of purification, and it later morphed into a personal argument, which is often the case. So he begins by talking about these issues. They're, they're fussing with Jesus' disciples because they didn't think, probably, that Jesus and his disciples were paying enough attention to the Old Testament purification laws. Now Jesus, as I've already pointed to you, always followed the law of God. But he didn't always follow the law of man. And the Jews had taken these laws of purification and added to them huge amounts of rules of how they could, uh, could or could not be pure. I was listening to a preacher this week from a major university, and he started this university, and he was talking about how the Jews are so careful 
to be kosher in certain areas, but in other areas they don't seem to care. And I have been to Israel so many times, and I like to go into a McDonald's and order a cheeseburger. Well, certain areas are kosher and certain are not. But if you go to a kosher McDonald's, they'll say, sorry, we're not going to give you a cheeseburger. You can have a hamburger and you can have cheese, but you cannot have a cheeseburger because you cannot mix the meat and the dairy. That's not kosher. Well, they were having an argument about what's kosher. What, what purification had occurred? I don't know exactly what had happened, but they're arguing about this. And then it went to a personal issue. And without realizing it, John's disciples were getting into a competition thing. And so then John's disciples come to him and say, listen, John, that man over there, he's taking everybody. And it's almost like they're wailing out, everybody's going to him. Our numbers are going down, son, and his numbers are going up. That's a problem. We're in this to build up an organization, aren't we? We're in this to build up an institution, aren't we? Does it sound a little bit like the modern-day church? There might be someday somebody say, well, how come you're bringing those people in at Pebble Creek? Shouldn't they be somewhere else? Well, we just want them to be where God wants them to be. That's all. That's all. That's all. Talked to someone yesterday who told me that they loved me, but they felt led to stay somewhere else. I said, guess what? Stay where you feel led to go, brother. That's where I want you. Praise the Lord. I rejoice with you. He said, thank you. It makes me feel so much better. But without realizing it, John's disciples were putting this into a issue of competition and comparison. All men come to him. And often a leader will suffer more from zealous disciples and adherents than from really critics. And that's what's happening here. So this argument has arisen between John the Baptist and his followers and Jesus and his followers. Now let's focus on the answer. Now the major point is focusing on the answer. Well, how did John the Baptist deal with this issue? Well, he states pretty clearly a conviction. All ministry and all blessing comes from the Lord. Period. There should never be competition in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something, friends. I hear competition all the time. Anytime somebody starts a church, somebody gets upset that they might take away some of their members. Well, if, if you're that worried, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'll never forget. And I, friends, hear me well. I'll never forget when New Spring came into town. They were going to start a Greenville campus. Ooh, did the preachers in Greenville get worried. You know what I did? I wrote the leaders at New Spring and said, how can we help you? Do you want to borrow any equipment? We'll, we'll help you any way we can. If you're winning people for Christ, guess what? We rejoice. We rejoice. If you want to start a campus right beside of us, if you're going to reach people we can't, Praise the Lord. Oh, my friends, this competition stuff's got to end. And John said, listen, there can be no competition. God alone must get the glory. And so John used a beautiful illustration here of the bridegroom. And look at those last verses. He really beautifully expresses what it's like to be the best man for the bridegroom. And he said, Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. I'm just the friend of the, of the, of the groom. And 
I'm just delighted to hear the voice of the groom. And when the groom has got his bride and he's all excited, it makes me happy just to hear the excitement of the bridegroom. And John said, listen, disciples, my whole job is to point to that man. My whole job is to make him greater and me lesser. And it was a powerful word. But you've got to remember, even before John the Baptist was born, he, the Bible says, as a in utero human being, and I believe babies are human beings in the womb. He leapt in the womb. Remember when, he, when his mama found out about Jesus getting ready to be born? The Bible says John leapt. He jumped in the womb of his mother. So it was his lifelong desire to point to the supremacy and the messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was quite content to be a voice announcing Jesus to be the word and the way. And remember what he said, I'm not even willing, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of that man. Oh my friends, Instead of competition and comparison, all of us ought to be saying, God gets the glory. God gets the glory. The image of the bridegroom would have been significant to the people of Israel because Jehovah God had made a marriage covenant with them and had to put them away for a time because of their unfaithfulness and drew the remnant back to Him. Today, God has a people of His name called the church, the bride of Christ. And He is calling us to a unique relationship with Him. And we look forward to that day when the bride will be called home to be with our bridegroom fully and completely. But until then, what do we do, church? We point to the bridegroom the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why verse 30, say it out loud with me, He must become greater, I must become less. That must be our goal, that must be our desire, that must be our purpose. Well, how do we do that? I mean, really? I mean, that sounds real good, doesn't it? But how do we do that? I mean, how does that happen in real life? Well, I also love another passage, and I want you to put it up there, Ashley. Would you put that up on there? And I want you to just look at it with me for a moment. It comes out of the book of Ephesians, and your, our adult Sunday school class, soon-to-be classes, plural, will be studying Ephesians. But look and see what it says. You're taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your what? Your mind. What did we read a couple of weeks ago in Romans that you're transformed by the renewing of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what Paul says in Ephesians is exactly what John was talking about. That God must increase, we must decrease. It must be a volitional decision, an act of the will whereby we say, no, to the old way and yes to the new way. It is a volitional choice to end the old way of life. 
And so we need to become less so that he might become greater. It's a decision, a volitional choice about what life is really about. And it's about him, not us. Now, I cannot tell you how antithetical that is to 21st century life. Children today are raised from day one to believe they are the center of the universe. They really are. In fact, did you know among millennials, a full 25 to 30 percent of all millennials believe they will be famous by the time they reach 30 years old? Well, good for you. That's good. Go for it. But what I'm simply saying is, why do they feel that way? Because we've done that to them. Now, John and Allison get the free babysitting services of Dale and Frank Page regularly. A couple of times this week, we just love, we love, we live for it. And you know one of the reasons why Johnny and Allison like me to be around? Because I'm a helicopter grandfather. Do you know what that means? Helicopter parents are the worst in the world, and I'm the worst helicopter grandfather to ever live. Ain't nobody going to get hurt while I'm around. Whatever they want to do while I'm around, they can do it. I told you on Wednesday night, my little granddaughter got a spanking the other day from her daddy and her mama. I didn't say this on Sunday, I don't think. But I said to her, I was talking to her the next day, the little three-year-old. I said, Monroe, Papa does not like it when you get a spanking. And I hear you got a spanking. She looked at me as serious as life. She said, well, I didn't like it either, Papa. But let me tell you something. I heard that her father one day say to the brother, you're not the most important person in this room. And I thought, you're probably the only millennial parent saying that in the United States of America. Because I'm sure not going to say that as a grandfather. Let me tell you, he is the most important thing in the world. Okay, I'm not quite that bad. But let me tell you something. We're raising a whole generation of people to believe that it's all about them. And we felt that way ourselves. It's not their fault. We've done this to them. But let me tell you something. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen about that, can't you? It is about him. And John the Baptist was saying, he's got to become greater because I've got to become less. I've got to become less because he's got to become greater. It is all about him. So I urge you, I ask you, I beg of you today to make a a choice between the old way and the new way. I wonder, would you make these following vows with me? I've got three statements I want you to look at with me, please. Could you say with me today, I promise that the remainder of this year will be a year in which I consciously recognize that life is about the Lord, not about me. As hard as it is, Can I say, God, I want to recognize the remainder of 2019 and as we go into 2020, I recognize life is not about me. It's about you. Second, I commit my life to living in God's righteousness and holiness, as the Ephesians passage said, so that I will be more like Him. And then third, I pray that I will die to self. And live unto him. Now, friends, it's easy to say that on Sunday morning at 10 30. 
But when it gets hard is when the real world comes in. At the workplace, at the schoolhouse, in the house house. That's where it gets hard, doesn't it? And it must be an ongoing conscious decision. A volitional decision to say, Lord, I, I want to die to self and live to you. Now, are you going to get there totally? I'll pray you will. I know some people that act like they think like they've gotten there. The Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, said, I'm still working on it. Well, I promise you, I'm still working on it. I've got a long, long, long way to go. Some of you have heard me tell my silly, stupid story about Jimmy Harley, the associate pastor, now retired for the 14th time at Taylor's. I had a staff member one time trying to irritate me, which they did regularly and did well. One of them said to me, does it bother you, Dr. Page, that uh, there are people in this church that like Jimmy Harley better than they like you? Now, some of you don't know Jimmy Harley, but he kind of makes me sick. He's perfect. <laughs> I mean, he preaches great. He prays great. He memorizes scripture great. He... He just does everything great. He always looks good. He's got more hair than I do. He always dresses perfect. He compliments every woman. He just, he'll lie. Dale, is that a new outfit? Oh, it looks so good on you. <laughs> just says, I mean, he's just so good. He really is so good. He really is. One of the best hires I ever made in my life. So quickly I said back to this staff member, and I usually can't think of something good until 20 minutes later. But this one time I said, yep, nope, doesn't bother me at all. You know why it doesn't bother me? He said, why? I said, because I like Jimmy Harley better than I like me too. <laughs> I wasn't lying. I know me. And I know the struggles I have. And I do like Jimmy Harley better than I like me. Because every day I have to consciously say, okay, Lord, more of you, less of me. More of you, less of me. Can you say with John the Baptist, can you say with all honesty, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Can you say it out loud with me one more time? He must increase, but I must decrease. Father, in Jesus' name, that is our heart's desire. Lord, we want you to increase. And God, that means we want you to increase at work and home. We want to be more like you as we travel and play. Lord, we want you to increase and we want us to decrease. And may people forget our names, but never forget who we loved, you. May they even forget the name of this church, but may they never forget what this church stood for. You must increase, and we must decrease. Lord, may it be so. And we ask this in Jesus' name.